Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Tobin, it is great to have you on the show. The new book, Foxocracy Inside the Network's Playbook for Tribal Warfare. You have a long-standing career uh, tied to Fox and other ventures. Uh, it's great to have you on today. How are you doing? Thanks for doing great. Um, I'm, I'm, I was listening to some of your podcasts. You do a good job, young man. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so let's get into it. Um, I like to ask the question, what's it a name? So Foxocracy, um, I, but all, it's, the, it's the, the tagline, Inside the Network's Playbook of Tribal Warfare. Um, you obviously have the inside knowledge, so unpack the title for us. Well, I don't know. How much time is this thing? Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, when... When I started with Fox in uh, June of 2000, I, I'm an equity analyst, you know, uh, macroeconomics guy. I, I, you know, I don't do politics. But uh, when Barack Obama got elected, it, it the whole thing changed. We went from having, when I started, we'd have 50,000 viewers to our weekly show on Saturday morning, The Bulls and Bears. Uh, and then we rocketed up to about 250,000 during the Florida election fiasco. Uh, and then it sort of, petered out but as soon as obama got elected we're going 800,000 then a million a million five and and during that time to retain that audience uh you know fox just made the decision that they were going to program i didn't care what it was business you know animation whatever they were going to program in a way that appealed to the base instincts of people who whose world was shattered that without, you know, being too judgmental here, the concept of an African-American president of the United States just blew their minds. And, um, a, and then B the politics, um, particularly, um, you know, a healthcare plan, which they didn't understand. And so our, we are, the show turned into, you know, what I found, found out later as I started to host shows was it <laughs> the producers picked, the stupidest democratic strategists to come on and they would, then we'd ask them a macroeconomic question or we'd ask them a, a question about healthcare, which they knew nothing about. So they would come out and the only thing they could say would be sort of the, the party line, uh, the liberal party line. And that of course made the, the guys at home just because it's the, 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 remember the audience for Fox news, the, the median age is 66 years old. So think about that. Well, all of a sudden, I start, you know, as I'm traveling around the country, and I would fly up every week to, to New York to do these shows, and then we started Fox Business Network. And these guys would stop me in the airport, I swear to God, and they'd say, Tobin Smith, I got to tell you, I wanted to throw a brick through my TV screen when that stupid libtard, blah, 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 and they did whatever it was for that week, right? Well, after about 200 people, Doing the saying using the same words <laughs> on the same time, you know, the whole inflection, it was it, it blew me away. I, I you know I have about three credits in, in uh, cognitive psychology, but you know I was able to actually open up a few books, etc. And it 
you know, dawned on me that, you know, ding, shock. Um, why did it feel great to hate your political opponent? And as I got deeper and deeper in the psychology of it, it was really simple that, um, you know, the back of our brain, that little uh, amygdala back there and the rest of our other cortex, they don't know that we're not living on the savanna in Africa. But when they were formed and evolved via evolution, sorry, it didn't happen in 10 days, uh, via evolution, um, we are hardwired to want to belong to a, a tribe because it's safe. And it's unsafe if you, uh, you know, go to the leader of the tribe and say, hey, wait a minute, why are we doing this? You know, now you're out of the tribe and now you're in the food chain. And so we evolved just as human beings and are wired via our DNA to seek uh, to be part of a tribe. In other words, a, a people who have like mind, like worldview, uh, look alike, sound alike. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, that made sense at one level. But then it was, why does it feel so good to hate people? I mean, to sit there and say, I wanted to, uh, can I use a bad word on the show? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I, I would hear all the time, I just wanted to just strangle that motherfucker. I'm like, well, hey, hang on, hang on, man. <laughs> Come on. Mm -hmm. It's a TV show. <laughs> what, you know, uh, how, how, how do you get so wound up? And then, and then, they start spouting everything they heard on Fox, you know, the, for the last week or last month. But, for, you know, whatever the talking point was that got them riled up. But the psychology was this, and this was what was interesting to me, Randy, that when I um, self-identify as a proud member of the Democratic Party, the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, it doesn't matter what, what your political party is. But when you self-identify that, then... A, a pretty big part of your ego gets stroked when you see evidence of how morally and intellectually superior you are versus your tribal enemy, because nobody chose to be in the tribe to be in the second best tribe. Um, and uh, uh, so now you're a 66 year old white, usually semi obese American who lives in parts of the country that aren't doing very well in the new, you know, uh, digital age, and um, and you, and and this is the third leg of the stool. I, I'm just a broad example, but this viewer, uh, his grandfather, or his, let me go back, his father worked, for instance, at Ford or GM or worked in a you know manufacturing plant, had union wages, union pension, um, paid vacation, and he lives down in Florida in a really nice house. He gets a pension that he cannot spend because, you know, cable's pretty cheap down there and beer is pretty cheap. And um, and when this guy, this 55 to 65-year-old boomer, goes to visit his dad, he's like, how come I'm not living like this? I'm, I'm living in the same area I grew up. They grew up with expectations to have a lifestyle like their dad. And I mean, that's not unreasonable. When that didn't happen, um, then... You know, we had tens and tens of millions of people who lost manufacturing jobs. Now, the ironic part of this, of course, is, is that when did globalization start? Well, it was when George Bush signed the essentially uh, the, the NAFTA treaties and the detente with China and trading, you know, and so on and so forth. And it was the Republican uh, liturgy 
that in entrepreneurship and capitalism, we're going to, you know, uh, make as much money as possible. We're going to spread that prosperity. And the best way you could ever uh, make more money is to ship off $15, $18 an hour manufacturing jobs over to like Foxconn today in the news in China, where they have 500,000 people who work at one plant. They live there. And they went on strike yesterday because they didn't get their $50 annual bonus. So put that all in a stew. And then, man, when we went to high def 4K, all the hot looking women, um, I mean, this was just pandered to every, the lowest element of a human being. But Roger Ailes, God bless him. It was called news. It was called Fox News. And, and we were fair and balanced. And that, that whole positioning just then get the final element to say, hey, I'm watching the news. And it's not the liberal news. It's not the New York Times or NBC or CBS who are prejudiced against me, uh, the Fox News viewer, because they think they're smarter than I am. And now you get into the fourth stool of first leg of this chair, Randy, which is uh, the, the, the the deplorables. Um, the you know you, you couldn't have come up with a bigger insult. Uh, and Hillary was using that line, by the way, way before she ran for president. Um, and so now they look down upon me. They disrespect me. They uh, raise my taxes. Of course, almost seventy percent of our audience didn't pay taxes, but you know they paid Social Security and FICA. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was all the elements of you're going to create this, this stew. And when you jumped in, you got energized. You were, you were with your own people. You don't have to put up with the bullshit NBC News or, you know, uh, NPR or so on and so forth who look down upon you. You're, these people like you. These people respect me. These people, uh, uh, you know, share a, a common viewpoint and add it all together. And, and there was one final leg of this which was that in 1986, uh, Ronald Reagan, who I was a big Ronald Reagan fan, I grew up in California and, and I interviewed him and did some other stuff and big fan. Well, he was starting to lose his marbles, as we all know. And Roger Ailes, God bless the, the co-founder of Rupert Murdoch of Fox News, who, by the way, invented the attack ad for, uh, uh, for election campaigns. My dear wife from Canada, comes down in like 1987, we're watching something and this attack ad comes on. She says, Toby, you can't say that on television. I said, well, sure you can. <laughs> sure you can, because we, we used to have this rule called the Fairness Doctrine. It came, started after World War II when, when broadcasters came back from the front and they saw how effective the propaganda was, particularly the film propaganda. And now this new TV was, thing was starting. And so they created this thing that said, basically, you have to have 12 hours a week to get a license and it has to be public affairs. You can't sell any advertising. But most important, if the topic is taxes and you have a senator from the left, you have to have a senator from the right so that, you know, it was a fair fight, if you will. Um, and, you know, that opened up the Pandora's box. Rush Limbaugh then was able to start, you know, with, with his single-sided right wing. Uh, stuff got good ratings, man. As soon as you get good ratings, you multiply like bunnies, and um, and so then the, and then Newt Gingrich um, wrote a book of how to 
insult and inflame uh, uh, your audience and to denigrate your uh, your enemy. It wasn't your political adversary. It was your enemy. And that book propagated all through, um, you know, essentially it, it became the rule book, the playbook of, uh, in, their, in their case, you know, 1994 and, and, and uh, then the tax revolts and so on and so forth. So this whole ecosystem produced, unfortunately, um, about 60 million angry, bitter Americans. And the, the way they feel the best, because, you know, there is this little uh, chemical called dopamine, right? And when you, uh, when you feel it, let, let me use this example. There's a television show called Hoarders. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've seen Hoarders. <laughs> well, Hoarders is a show that films mentally ill people who are hoarding things. And um, ultimately, they help them clean up, right? About 85% of the viewers are women. And when you ask a woman, why on earth would you watch an hour worth of television about mentally ill people? The universal answer is because, oh, my God, I feel so much better about myself when I, you know, when right. I see this, right? Well, that's exactly the same dopamine hit a person who self-identifies. A big part of their self-identity is their political and cultural belief system. When you see evidence of how stupid those libtards are, boom. And dopamine is is, you know, essentially cocaine is the chemical version of dopamine, extremely addictive. And all of a sudden from seven till, you know, eight o'clock, you live or nine o'clock on the East Coast, dad felt great yelling and screaming at the television. Uh, and mom started watching too, because she, this guy was watching it six hours a day. <laughs> and there you go. That That is why I wrote the book, because there were so many people contacted me there was a great movie called the brainwashing of my uh, my dad by jen i'll think of her name in a second and her dad had gone through that exact loop he was a salesman for auto parts and you know drove all the country great guy loving et cetera, et cetera. and then he started listening to rush uh, and then fox and he just completely went down the rabbit hole um and uh in this case he was sort of brainwashed M most of our uh, you know, most of our viewers didn't need to be brainwashed. They already came in. What they wanted to be is be accepted and not looked down upon. Hmm. And um, uh, we did that in AIDS. And, and then we said things that no one would say. And then the, the, the hamster wheel, unfortunately, is, is ask any addict, um, you know, if one hit of, of Coke is, was good, it's not good anymore. I need two hits of Coke. And I need the stronger stuff. Uh, and so the, 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 the hamster wheel that Fox found itself on, you know, culminating with uh, Trumpism, was that Donald Trump was the great, greatest gift they ever got because they were running out of shit to say. I mean, there's so many, you know, there's only so many ways you can attack people. There's only so many ways you can say these people are horrible human beings and so on and so forth. And um, then the ratings went from one and a half million to three and a half million to six million. Um, you know, because of Trumpism. So all I wrote the book about was for people to understand the psychology and the brain chemistry that makes it so easy for me to push every one of your freaking buttons. And I will own you 
And you don't even, you know, it's like that Bill song, Bill Withers song. If it feels this good being used, you can keep on using me until you <laughs> use me up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it felt great. It felt great to hate. It feels great to hate your tribal enemy. And this took years to happen, but it would never have happened without Roger Ellis and the Fairness Doctrine. It would have never happened without Rupert Murdoch, who when they, he, you know, he signed a big $5 billion deal in 1993, for crying out loud, for the NFL. As I'm sure you know, since you Texans claim to have America's football team, which is rubbish. Um, but uh, I'm just trying to piss your audience off. But uh, he said, listen, I'm going to need blue collar people to be watching Fox Network um, to be able to uh, you know, so, get football fans. Uh, and so one of the ideas was Fox News Channel was to essentially to plug into you know, the working man um, and, and build an audience. People don't realize that, but that's that was really the, re- the the reason that he sold it on it was that he after that five billion dollars he was willing to spend two hundred million dollars in carriage fees because the other um, uh, right wing media uh, uh, networks had tried, but when you go when you belong to twenty five hundred cable systems, the cable systems want you to pay them for carriage on their cable system, and Rupert ate $300 million over three years to get that carriage. And once we got an audience, then all of a sudden they started paying us mm. and they flipped the deal. So, I mean, this, the history of it, most people who watch it or in the media have no idea how, how a very now right-wing um, uh, national television show can call themselves Fox News. And uh, there you go. So I'm out of breath. <laughs> okay. Well, I will tell one story I think I've told on the show before, and one maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But two moments that I can remember distinctly that made me realize I might do I might go three here, but two for sure yeah. that made me realize what I was listening to and watching wasn't really anything more than uh, propaganda. And I'd be happy to make I don't watch a lot of MSNBC, but I've watched enough to say that I can make these same claims on that side as well. Yeah. Um, but I remember uh, distinctly where I was, I was listening to Hannity on the radio and he had on a democratic strategist and Sean's well on him. He goes, you know, your candidate had an affair with his wife. Um, you know, how can we elect that guy? And the guy says to Hannity, um, well, you, you, my candidate did not run on family values, but you're supporting Bob or whoever it is. And he did the same thing. What do you say to that? And Hannity's response was, it's my show. I asked the questions. And I was like, oh, this isn't really a debate. This isn't really a discussion. We're not actually interested in morals and morality. N- none of this is is real. Like this is just, this is just. We're going to beat up on our guest here. Um, which okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But but don't don't act like all of a sudden you're concerned about these things when you get pressed. You you don't have an actual answer. Yeah, it, and I it, also, it's, yeah. It's yeah. a form of it's 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 theatrical art. Um, it everything about it, including. Um, you know, that stand up and say, hey, hey, who's got the bigger schlong here? Because that's what Hannity basically is always saying. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, it, it, it's an art form. Mm-hmm. And and no, nobody's better at it than Sean Hannity. And the, the other story I tell is I remember there's a period when Glenn Beck was at Fox and he would oh, yeah. have this segment where he would have the phone and he would say, the White House has the number. The president can call anytime they're watching. And I remember going, 
you want me to believe that President Obama sits down every day at whatever time he shows on and watches for this hour. He has the number in his hand and he's 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 toying with should he pick up and call Glenn Beck on live TV? I don't think that's anywhere near reality. Um, but it sounds really good, and it makes people go, "Oh man, the president's scared," and this, that, and the other. Right, right. And, and, and those those tactics and tools, um, you know, one of the things about about new media, at least for this show, is I try to bring on people, be respectful to them, listen to them, you know, what they have to say. Is that those platforms are not meant for that purpose. Um, and, and so once you step out of that for a while and you realize this is not what's going on when you go back to it, it's almost hard to stomach because you realize this is all, it's just theater. It's just theater. And it's, it's theater. And you know, so you make a great point. Um, I'm just going to have to assume because, you know, I now have four units of, uh, psychology, um, that you as a person are pretty comfortable with who you are. Um, you like to hear, uh, both sides of an, an argument because that helps you frame, you know, your worldview. I'm going to uh, introduce this uh, concept, and it explains a lot. So in cognitive psychology, there's a term called deep mimetic frame. And that, yes, that's the word where meme came from is mimetic. And mimetic <laughs> simply means that that it's a it's either an image or, a, a you know, a a, a paragraph or so on and so forth, a spoken sentence that's done over and over and over and over again. And it's deep because if you've heard it over and over and over and over again, and you're open to the point and it makes you feel better about yourself when you hear this point, then that becomes your frame, F-A-R-A-M-E. And that frame, as it gets deeper, uh, as you're deeper, you know, I could say sort of into the rabbit hole, then it your your mimetic frame, your deep mimetic frame literally controls what you hear and don't hear. I mean, you know the term cognitive dissonance, but this is like a whole di- different deal. You, we have 65 million people in the United States who have watched so much of this and absorbed so much of it and never thought for a second like you that, you know, this sort of seems like performance art. I, I never really thought about that. I, I, I you know... When I told people that, uh, and I wrote a book about how we would script, we, you know, we get these points of view, POV, right, from the from the guests who come on. But all we would, it, we, they wouldn't get our points of view. <laughs> we only got their points of view. And so I would just beat the shit out of this person on because I knew exactly what they were going to say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd go buy him a drink at uh, Del Frisco's across the street after the show just to, like, you know, Say, I'm not an asshole. I just, I have a job to do here. I'm the closer. Um, and the host, Brenda Butner, my dear friend who died years ago of cancer, she knew that if she needed the hitman, and that's what they called me, then, then they would just, all right, Toby, what do you think? Well, first off, I don't know on an IQ basis of 70 or 700 where this person is, but I couldn't get you closer to 70, okay? I don't, <laughs> how do they, right. how would you come up with it? Blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. you just blow them up. Now, the thing was that they volunteered, you know, they had press agents calling to be the next tackle dummy because it was helping them build a reel uh, and mm-hmm. as a consultant. Um, so it was the perfect scenario. You couldn't pay them. I mean, if you go back to the game shows in the 50s, right, they were giving some of these people the answers because it was so great to watch somebody who'd won like 60 games in a row. Well, guess who was the producer 
on that show, Roger Ailes. Mm. Uh, mm. Once you once you see how powerful it is, and and understand how easy it is to manipulate when somebody walks into your uh, screen who is already addicted to what you're selling, this is not difficult. The the, the hard part is keeping the wheel going. Because as I say, you got to raise the bar. When Bill O'Reilly started, I used to do his show almost every week. I know a lot about energy, and this at the times, you know, energy prices were going up. And he would—he's the only guy who, who, as a host, would talk to you before you got on. And I say, Smith, listen, you said that oil prices were going down three months ago. They're actually up. I'm going to call you out on it. Well, uh, just you know, Bill. By the way. Factually, that's the exact opposite. And let me uh, send you the, let me send you the text. And uh, and the guy and the same thing. Hey, whose show is it? Is it the Tobin uh, Tobin Smith show? No. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. So it's it's performance art. People are a willing, a very willing audience to have their self esteem boosted. The, the way they get their self esteem boosted, I don't know. What, who's your favorite sports team? Who do you follow? Who do you cheer for? Well, right now, uh, basketball would be the Celtics. Okay. So if you're a Celtics fan, I mean, I was a diehard Lakers fan for years. Season tickets, uh, got in the booth with Jerry West. I grew up that place. I played basketball. Um, if you said anything against the Lakers, those were fighting words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly if you're a Celtics fan. And when the Celtics had played the, the Lakers, I was it was so great. And here's, here's why I'm using this example. At the forum, the season ticket holders for the or the ticket holders for the Celtics, we'd have four or five guys to our right, and we would be five guys to the left. And we had a blast, you know, being like dudes and, you know, making fun of them and, you know, being in their face. And at the end of it, we all had a beer and laughed. You couldn't do that today. You couldn't take five, you know, hardcore you know, right-wing Trumpers and five hardcore, uh, you know, Biden spurs or whatever. You couldn't do it. And and I think we've left out the other, you know, magnifying part of this whole deal, which is obviously social media. Um, and, and, you know, when I started, uh, you know, you probably don't remember, there was this thing called AOL and I had an email account. Oh, yeah. And I was way ahead of the curve, baby, let me tell you. Um, but But there's been some great work on how uh, addictive and how much biology and, and, and cognitive psychology went into creating the algorithms uh, and, the, um, and basically measuring what captures your interest and then giving you uh, everything that you know, escalates up the level because the algorithm knows that it, you, I can't just show you the same sort of stuff. I need to amp it up. And the more you amp it up, the more the guy gets pissed and the more the guy gets pissed and angry, uh, the more he hates on his people. And the more he hates on those fucking libtards, ah, feels great to hate those shitheads, right? <laughs> and so it's, 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 that's another preordained, preorchestrated. And nobody thought, ever thought, that if you combine, you know, Fox News type information and or MSNBC information, and then you weaponized it by algorithmatizing uh, people's attention span, then, then you know, it's what I've uh, – the next book is tentatively called Dopamine Economics, which is si- simply to show how 
the, the business of capturing attention and selling that for ads has always been around. We had radio, we had television. It's always been around. We used to have theoretically in, in department stores, there was a rumor that, that they were putting like silent messages to make you buy stuff, you know I mean? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, all, all this has been around, but it was never weaponized. You could turn it the freak off. You didn't watch it for four or five hours. Um, you, you didn't have essentially uh, cognitive scientists, uh, what I would call is a Fox News producer, who got schooled by the greatest of all, Roger Ailes, how to immediately grab someone by the throat, shake them up and down, get them pissed off, keep them pissed off, and then leave them hanging until you can show, you know, four minutes of ads uh, and then come back. Um, and the guys who watched had never seen anything like this. They'd, they'd seen, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC. When you saw a debate, it was an equal thing. Um, and uh, uh, and no one pandered to the audience. Well, we, we pandered the crap out of the audience because because that there's a there's also a psychological concept that I think people have missed. And again, it's cognitive psychology 201, which is the idea of identity fusion. Identity fusion simply means that if you become, you know, a strong, proud uh, Trump supporter, you're a MAGA all the way. At some point for many of these people, their self-identity merges with their political, cultural identity. And that magnifies it all by 10x. And, And so, you know, when you can get somebody who's essentially gone through this uh, cultural and political fusion process with their own self-identity, then their cultural uh, team, their political team, and many times becomes the largest part of their self-esteem, particularly if if you live in, you know, here's another little fact for you, Randy, I know that, you know, your ears are going to be bleeding after this interview. Um, uh we have 3,233 counties in the United States. Of those, about 65 of those counties produce over 70% of the GDP. Mm-hmm. And shockingly, in those counties, nobody watches Fox News. Mm-hmm. However, if you want to find a Fox News viewer, go to one of the 3,200 left counties, uh, and that's where the viewership is. And it it makes perfectly good sense for all the obvious sort of socioeconomic and cultural um, reasons. But when people who, the, 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 the 65 million people who live in the 60 counties, uh, average household income is two and a half or three times more than the people in those other 3,200 counties. That, um, that didn't have anything to do with Fox News. <laughs> that had to do with a whole bunch of economic things that I won't bore you with. But um but if you're in, if you're in the left behind group, and then the people who are on top of you treat you like dog shit and say that you're a racist and call you the deplorable, no one could have invented from the right wing or the right you know the conservative culture world could not have invented a better way to disenfranchise their believers and harden their beliefs than what the Democratic Party has been spewing out for. And particularly the, you know, the progressive stuff. And, you know, I don't know, if, if defund police isn't enough to make you want to pull your eyes out. Um, uh, so there's, you know, that was the other thing. The, 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 the people on the left, it's almost like they're trying to alienate people. I mean, they were saying that, you know, we're going to have to get Hispanic voters because that's the largest, fastest growing voter base. And all they do is, is insult Hispanic people. 
Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it could. Uh, that's another book. Who are the worst election marketers in the world? <laughs> By question, it's got to be the the, DOC, the DRC. They they just they don't understand stuff. So anyway, but 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 if you add on the 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 weaponizing, the emotional weaponization of social media on top of all of this content, then a, a cognitive psychologist who understood algorithmatized social media, uh, you know, a, a, a blind do- three-legged dog with a, a note tied around its neck could have figured out that we were, all we were going to do is inflame and, and, and disenfranchise and make enemies and become tribal because we created the greatest tribal manufacturing system in the world has ever seen. And nobody knew what social, social media was a tech thing, man. They didn't know that there's freaking writing algorithms. They don't say that algorithms are based on cognitive psychology and addiction. Nobody knew that shit. Uh, and, and, but when you poured on Fox after 5,000, know, excuse me, 2006, 2008, and you could pour all that content and then, of course, you got Breitbart and then you got, you know, other drudge. God bless him. I think he's still in business. Um, <laughs> then all you just got is this massive distribution system. Oh, yeah. And then it was this thing called the cell phone and then the iPhone and then the iPad. And now you have uh, 335 million people who have 2.1 billion digital devices. And 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 the. Uh, everybody's in a war to get the attention of those people. And so once I've created, you know, the mega monster, then the mega monster only wants to hear stuff that proves their point. They can't stand hearing anything that would be <clears throat> insulting to their mimetic themes. Uh, and and now I can reach you 24 hours a day. And I can send you little updates to tell you that if you click here, I'll give you another reason to hate those sons of bitches. I mean, it. You couldn't have, I mean, the only people better at this was uh, Nazi Germany. They had the movies, um, they had the speeches, they had the newspapers, they had, you know, a crazy smart uh, propagandist, uh, Alfred Eichmann. Uh, you had, uh, and, 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 and then they created the other. And the other, you know, is always the person you're supposed to hate. And, you know, those Jews had all the stores, they had all the money. We just got out of the, of the depression, and geez, those those Jews seem to be doing fine, and and real real Germans, you know, white Germans aren't. So now we have the mimetic frame, uh, and look what what it got them. Of course, the Germans just like to fight anyway. I you know I've never understood their. <laughs> I've I've counted one time. I happen to be a little bit of a war historian. Everything that used to be Germany, you know, it was all like twenty three you know cantons before. They've been in like twenty three different wars. I mean, look at the Prussians, you know, they said, well, you let's how much are you going to pay me to go fight those stupid colonialists? Well, we're going to pay you uh, five bucks a month. I'm in. So, you know, uh, thankfully, we don't have quite the warmongering personality of the old Germans. So if I were to rename the show, I'd call it on the bar on the margin, because that's what fascinates me. I have. I got some books playing around here about uh, on the critical race theory. Yeah. And one of the books, one of the papers asserts um, that part of the issue with um, resegregating schools has to do with the impact of inflation, which is an interesting point in observation. And I've told that to some of my conservative friends and they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, well, well, hold on. We can't 
bemoan the Fed and inflation on one day. And then when someone says, here's a real world applicable problem that we're seeing, say that that's not credible. And it's fascinating because if I just said the the Fed uh, is causing inflation and is keeping people down, people would generally agree with that. But when you put a specific group that might not be your voting demographic, all of a sudden then it becomes something you have to contest. And I I find that Hmm. just a stunning thing about society where it's like, well, you're not losing anything by agreeing with with this assertion at this point. Um, this point is something that you've actually already conceded in other in other points. What what is it about us that doesn't allow us to see those things quite so easily? Well, all right. So I actually am a macroeconomic uh, economics major and macroeconomist. That's what I do for a living. So you certainly- and, and before you say whether you agree with you might disagree with the Fed premise. I'm saying, but these people would agree with the Fed premise. So that would be the right. Right. Well, it would start. I mean, but the premise would be. Um, that the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, um, did not create price inflation. Um, on, only, I mean, with the proviso that that when they added three trillion dollars of cash money into the system uh, first after the uh, financial crisis, and then and then we went to quantitative easing, which meant that we were we were um, adding, uh, you know, $6 trillion of cash to the monetary system. There is no question. Then, of course, we had the pandemic. We had another $3 trillion of physical stimulus. There's no question. There's this thing called M1 and M2, which is a measurement of how much cash is in the system. And if you're a Keynesian economist, which I'm really not, but you can't argue with the fact that if you add $9 trillion to a $20 trillion economy, those dollars have to go somewhere. And and at the same time, we had no inflation. We had no price inflation for a variety of reasons, starting with we offshored all our manufacturing. And so, you know, with a Walmart shirt that cost me 35 bucks is now, you know, $14.95. Um, we had an uh, uh, energy, uh, you know, technology boom with fracking, as you know quite well down in your hood. And then all of a sudden, uh, Everybody, was, everybody had a billion dollars to go frack oil and natural gas, and I'll be daggum if there came too much oil and too much natural gas. And so we had energy prices flat for basically seven and a half, eight years. Uh, so that took energy costs out, which you know people outside of the energy space have a hard time understanding that you know everything that goes on in the economy it utilizes energy. <laughs> everything. I mean, I don't care what you do. People think, well, how, well, food, you just put, no, it's fertilizer, son. Well, how do you get fertilizer? Well, it comes out of natural gas. Really? I had no idea. So the price inflation, certainly because of the physical, we have too much money, but that also created asset inflation. And the, remember, coming out of, out of the financial crisis, I've talked about this for years, um, you know, there's this thing, it was written up five, about 65 different, uh, you know, they have 110 PhDs at the uh, Central Bank. So you got to do something. So they came up with this and proved that there's a wealth effect that since 25% of households spend 80% of the discretionary money, at 20% of the upper households hold 98% or 96% of all the wealth in the country, and the top 10% you know hold 89%. We got to get them people spending. Um, and and we need to get them keep spending. And so what happened? We reduced interest rates, et cetera. All of a sudden, my mortgage, you know, I, I could, you know, that's why real estate popped. That's why everything else popped. So 
my point to you, very long, unfortunately, is that most human beings uh, who did not study any macroeconomics in college, uh, and most people who did study macroeconomics fell asleep and then cheated on their test. They got it from somebody who knew what they were doing. Uh, is that there is a cause and effect here, and the central bank didn't do anything. Uh, they were fighting disinflation from 2010. Um, so now we have price inflation for a variety of reasons. Let's just not forget that, you know, there was this little invasion of uh, uh, Ukraine. And in our managed portfolios, we, I mean, I manage money for people uh, for a long time. We're, we're making ridiculous profits because we've been betting against uh, uh, on the Brexit trade, what I call it, which is the West's exit of Russia. And so, geez, our energy tankers and our LNG tankers and our LPG tankers and our uh, natural gas companies and so on and so forth are just done great. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, energy prices also were not a function of the central bank. And then supply chain uh, issues had nothing to do with the central bank. It had to be that we shipped all our, our supply chains overseas. So that's a long, you know, and a bunch of concepts to put together. So it'd be easy to say, well, it's the central bank's fault that we have inflation. But, you know, from any macro standpoint, a freshman macro guy could, could sh give you the numbers and say that's not plausible. But you know what? If you believe it, it's true. And so if somebody believes it's, it's the Federal Reserve, which they don't even know what they do, um, is the cause of inflation, um, that's a mimetic frame, my friend. That's just another cultural sort of aphorism, something that's completely wrong. But but if it's if you say it enough times and people hear it enough times, they believe it. So when you look at these large issues in society, um, one of the things that I've observed is the media will go from narrative to narrative. Yeah. And so I'll give you a couple examples. Pharmaceutical companies are the enemy. We should be regulating them very severely. Here's this vaccine. Take it without questioning. Why are you questioning what, what you should trust these people? Because science, in, in whether you'd like the vaccine or don't like the vaccine, uh, whether you think the, fit, the, the opioid crisis was bad or not, those are just two different narratives that aren't ever fleshed out. Um, I'll give you a different one. Um, you should always wear a suit. This is a Fox one. You should always wear a suit in the Oval Office. How could you disrespect the office that way? Well, President Trump's a character, therefore he's cool to do whatever he wants to. Um, and this comes from both sides. Um, these We go from narrative to narrative. And, and so to me, it seems quite reasonable that people are frustrated um, because they hear two conflicting narratives, or at least at surface yeah. level, appear to be conflicting narratives. And no one ever smooths over why something may have changed, why these are different, why one was right, why we've got a different opinion. How do we fix that problem? Well, you know, it's a very good question. Let me just expand a little bit on the concept of narrative, because, for instance, in the stock market, um, narrative is 90% of the value of a stock. Most people have no freaking idea you know, to put a, a econometric model together, say, here's what the value of the future cash flows are, you know, minus the inflation rate or, or interest rate. It's a narrative. And um, what narrative does is it reduces all the complex stuff is into a simple digestible answer that for people who are distracted 90% of the time anyway, um, you know, you have four kids, so you're distracted 99.9% .9 of the time. That's why you're doing your podcast. Uh, you narrative is is taking the complex and reducing it to uh, 
15 words or less that make one easily digestible and plausible explanation of something that's going on. Um, and uh, we've always done that. You know, that, that goes back to the Roman days, goes back to the Greek days. Um, they had longer sentences and bigger paragraphs, but, you know, that was Rome was not built in a day. That was a narrative. Um, uh, and, you know, fables were a narrative. The Bible is full of narratives. Uh, so it's it's a human, it's part of the human condition. I, again, I would go to probably to your point, which is that if you're going to be a consumer in a, a in a hundred billion dollar a year industry, which is basically the creation and propagation of political and cultural narratives, you should at least understand why you're so susceptible to narratives and why why a narrative is so powerful, um, and and thus be suspect of any narrative, the the pureness of any narrative. Because a narrative is only created to try to sell something. That's 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 it. And um, and to me, sort of in writing this book and 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 going through all of the uh, all of the incredible work that I spent with social excuse me social psychologists. First off, I didn't really know you could be a social psychologist. I mean, I didn't know that was a job, but they've spent you know. 100 years in social psychology trying to figure out you know the human condition and what makes us tick uh and the cognitive psychology what is embedded in our dna is a, well a narrative fits perfectly into both worlds a narrative of um i mean just simple liberals uh are if you're a liberal you are in favor of defunding the police letting in uh, illegal aliens uh, and uh, uh, creating a nanny state where the state government pays for everything. And that narrative on Fox News is repeated 50 to 100 times a day, not in those particular words, but in very, you know, some nuances, but that's basic, basic deal. They want to take your freedom away. Oh, yeah. And by the way, you know, they want to take your uh, AR-15 away because, you know, it's always a good idea for a 22-year-old to go and, and buy an AR-15 and then, you know, walk into Walmart today and yesterday was a gay club and so on and so forth. They want to take your guns away. They want to control it. We have a first, you know, there's so many narratives that totally match the feelings and belief system and the frame that Amer- many Americans have that it's it's too easy. So that's why that's why you and, and you know you hear in politics they say well they have to change the narrative or they're saying right now the Democrats have a bad narrative yes the Democrats have bad narratives they haven't come up with a good narrative in I don't know twenty years um, uh, the only narrative that worked was in two thousand six when this guy ran for president who wasn't George Bush uh, and wasn't a warmonger and and had voted against the Iraq War and so on and so forth. And it was a breath of fresh air, uh, and 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 then and then they you know created the ACA Act, which has helped 50 million Americans actually um, uh, you know afford to have an actual health care plan and, and not go bankrupt. So there were some good things that started, but when there was taxes raised, then I, I was one of the first speakers at the Tea Party things. Those Tea Party people were the strangest people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> 
they were dressed up like Paul Revere. And they would have my favorite sign, Randy, was was uh, uh, stop raising taxes. D- d- don't get rid of my Medicare. <laughs> don't cut yeah. my Medicare. Stop raising taxes. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so you know, a, a, a great narrative is um, a great narrative is extremely powerful. It has to fit people's pre-existing belief system, their frame, their cultural frame, their political frame. And then you just have to add one more piece, you know, to upset the, the balance. Uh, one more reason to hate your political rivals or your cultural rival. And and now I, you're, uh, all the narrative does in political politics or culture is just come up with a new reason to hate your political enemy or cultural enemy. Um, and a really good uh, political or cultural, um, excuse me, uh, one, uh, it comes really powerful. And it's the same thing in, 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 in stock market. Same, you know, right now the, the, uh, the narrative is the Fed's going to raise rates uh, high enough to squash inflation. And by the way, you have to raise your their rates higher than the inflation rate to actually do that. So a lot of people don't know that. Um, and that's going to create a recession, and therefore earnings are going to go down. So uh, one narrative is that, you know, like we are, we're about 70% in cash. We're 65%. We're 40% in you know, energy related type thing. And we're having a hell of a year we're making a lot of money. There's another narrative uh, that, you know, the market keeps rushing for, which is that the Fed is going to pivot, the magic pivot, and, uh, and inflation is peaked, and they're just going to be cutting frames. And it's all going to be, you know, roses and, uh, and uh, fresh cheese after that. So in the stock market, you always have a battle of two narratives. And then the battle actually is in real time. You know, you see it in real time. If we had a stock market for political and cultural memes, now that would be fun. Uh, <laughs> because in essence, people would be putting money behind their, you know, their meme. I'm voting, you know, I'm, I'm investing in the A meme or the, you know, uh, uh, narrative. And um, that would be very interesting. I, maybe I have an idea there. Maybe I may have a narrative, the, the narrative index. Okay. Last question for me is let's talk about suppression. Um, I, I, you know, I, on this I, podcast, I did not hear you there. You broke up a little bit. Yeah. yeah I said the last question is talk about the, the idea of suppression. Um, you know, on this podcast, we're going to have on guests from, you know, all walks of life with different opinions, whether I agree or not. And historically, the media, Dan Rather interviewed Saddam Hussein. You know, they interviewed Dahmer or Bundy or whomever. All these people who would be the worst, the worst Putin have been interviewed by the mainstream media. Um, but yet, when it comes to the independent media, the new media, whatever you want to call us, there is this this it's the partisan idea. Media, of, hey, okay, it's the partisan. Media. The part of, well, yeah, partisan media. However you want to phrase them, they can interview whomever they want. Um, but for someone like a Joe Rogan, maybe. Um, or, or, or whoever it is to interview someone outside of the bounds, then you're platforming them. I, it's a concept that's very strange to me because, again, they've interviewed Saddam Hussein, they've interviewed Dahmer or, or, or Bundy, I can't remember which one, maybe both of them. They've interviewed all of these people who were horrible people. <laughs> they have platformed them long before the podcast came around. Where did this concept come from? Is it a jealousy thing? Why do we battle? this idea of platforming people when the media yeah, has platformed people for yeah. decades. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go back to social media. There was a big difference 
when Dan Raver, <laughs> Raver, when Dan Rather, I think I've just had a stroke, hang on. Uh, when Dan Rather interviewed Saddam, uh, it was on mainstream, you know, television. Uh, maybe part of it was then put in a newspaper, but but everybody at that time, there was only three networks. And, and, you know, there was only three or four major newspapers that were read on a national, international basis. So the platforming, I think, is a euphemism for being uh, turning into a meme and being broadcast to uh, 250 million people who have, you know, three million digital devices. And they are getting platformed because it's, it's the what, what I see is is what I've responded to 20 seconds ago. And then that profile is built up into an algorithm over my behavior over the last, you know, one month, 12 months, 18 months. And when you get into the algorithmic attention platform, you are platforming that. And, and you are going to reach, I mean, look at, look at some of the likes, look at some of the, you know, look at TikTok, the person who gets 150 million views of, of, you know, two dogs fucking in a bush. Uh, you know, I mean, these are digital platforms. And if you create content that is the most engaging, you're going to engage not with like Dan Rather at the height of Dan Rather or CBS News of Walter Cronkite. There was, you know, called out 150 million televisions. They would get between ABC, NBC and CBS at night at six o'clock. Uh, I was there you would get 65% of the households watching one of those three news channels. Um, and, uh, and that was amazing. But everybody saw the same thing. <laughs> it's when everybody sees something that's made up scientifically, algorithmically to catch your attention and, and keep you on the, so you see ads. Now you're on a digital platform. And so, yes, they're, they're, uh, digital platforming is what changed the world when it comes to attention, the attention economy. That's the other term I'm, I'm fooling with for the new book is to go through how the attention economy works because it, it now we have this, the gigantic problem of there's only 24 hours in a day and we're being deluged with 72 hours a day of, of uh, content that is specifically targeted towards our affinities and our proclivities. And now you have to make a decision of what you're gonna watch and, and do. What I'm intrigued about podcasting is I'm a bike rider and a runner, right? Um, I usually listen to music when I'm riding or, you know, because it, it puts me away from trading stocks and all that stuff. But I have become a little bit of a podcast fan, too. And it was a good podcast, man. By the time I'm done with this shit, I've already run six miles, <laughs> you know? Uh, it, 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 if it's engaging, then uh, people, which means you're going to probably lose all your viewers after this podcast, but... Um, that's, that's what I love about <laughs> podcasts is, is that, you know, that I can, I can space out and learn something, uh, and, um, and do it for 60 minutes and not have to listen to gangster rap on my, uh, Apple phone. <laughs> okay. Um, where should we send people to, to follow you on Twitter, website, book, obviously we'll link to the show notes. Where else? Yeah. Well, so I'm, you know, at Tobin Smith on Twitter. Uh, I probably 70% of what I Twitter about are as economics and stocks and, and uh, the economy and all that stuff. 30% is, and I'm, I'm, you know, I was one of the first anti-Trumpers, by the way, because I interviewed that guy for Fox Business News. And all I, I, you know, I just simply say, it was literally the worst human being I ever met in my life. 
I, it was just bizarre to me. I, 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 he was trying to be as big an asshole as you possibly could be. And then when he ran for pre- president, I just, I, I've, I've always been an independent. I never identified as a Republican. I never identified as a liberal. But as soon as Donald Trump became running for president, actually, I became the anti-Trump of anti-Trump. I thought it was the devil incarnate, right? And so I became self-identified as a never-Trumper. That was the first uh, tribe I ever I ever uh, grew to was the never Trumpers, so that'll probably you know cut out some of the people from um, Transformity Research. www.transformityresearch.com is our website where we uh, um, uh, make uh, portfolios and do macroeconomic research and tell people what stocks to buy, what sectors to buy, what to avoid. Um, we did some really great work in the last 24 months, like like being out of the market, being in cash as the pandemic started. And then when the market crashed, we bought almost every energy company down in Texas, my friend, that were selling for about a dollar um, and did very well. So that's for people who are self-directed investors or interested in when is this bear market going to be over? Uh, you'll, you'll learn that stuff. Um, and then uh, on YouTube, uh, I do a show called Buy, Sell, Hold. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're sort of in hiatus right now, but that'll be up and uh, going again. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to miss me if you just look up Tobin Smith and, and don't believe all the bad things. <laughs> okay. We will link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck on this book and future books. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcast. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.